This is Andrew Klein from Strife, and you're listening to The New Scene. You want to hurt me? Go right ahead if it makes you feel any better. I'm an easy target. Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. This is Keith and Tommy, and we are back with another new episode. And boy, are we stoked because this is a jam-packed show. Tonight, the all-star lineup continues on the new scene with Patrick Flynn of Fiddlehead and Have Heart. Two incredible bands. The guy is hitting home runs with every musical project he gets involved in. Fiddlehead's new album, Between the Richness, has taken the world by storm this year. Have Heart are just classic. I'm really excited to talk to him, Tommy. I'm really excited to talk to Patrick for a couple of reasons, but um, we seem to have a lot in common. So A lot. As I was researching, I was like, this guy and Tommy are going to have a lot to talk about. It's almost uncanny. Like There was a couple times I was reading it, and I was like, dang, this is... Uh, it's almost weird. Like it was, it seemed like this is, uh, this is fate. And there's a couple times where he was talking about things and, um, we're trying to get into other things that, you know, may or may not have been touched on. And I think, uh, there was a couple times he was, he said same things. And I was like, I've said that exact same sentence. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's something I do to explain my family to other people. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> this is going to go, this is going to go well. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. And I mean, the guy has just done so much good music between Have Heart and, of course, Fiddlehead. There's going to be no shortage of things to talk about. Yeah. So, folks, quickly some updates from our sponsor, Iodine Recordings, the Jerome's Dream LP presents their shipping this week so by the time you hear this they should already be out the first press is pretty much sold out but the second press is still available on the site go check it out at iodinerecords.com it's a classic post-hardcore screamo unrivaled tommy just amazingness like they really they're one of those bands that does that same type of sound extraordinarily well but has continued to evolve and that was one of the things that kind of when I used to listen to music like that consistently. And that was like kind of in my daily rotation, uh, the really, really high pitch vocals would eventually wear on me and they've gotten away from that. And the new sound is just amazing. And if you are not a huge fan of that, you know, kind of screechy screamo sound, you need to check this album out. It's just amazingly. Yeah. The album really stuck with me and I'm excited to listen to it again. I've listened to it before, But once it gets on Spotify, I'm stuck on Spotify because of the convenience. You know, once it lands on Spotify, I'm going to listen to it again. The original was produced by Kurt Ballou, and this is remastered. So we love that. 
Also, Tommy, do you know that I purchased the Jerome's Dream t-shirt? Oh, I did not know that. Yes, those guys have good taste. No, we did have this. We had this conversation because we talked about uh, I bought uh, the hoodie from Glassing. Yes. I don't think it, I don't think it was on air though. I think this is like we exchanged text messages. <laughs> this was a secret off-air conversation. <laughs> this was like this was some backroom dealing shit. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And some more iodine updates. Limited edition color Garrison LPs are still available for the Ben Before the Break LP on the iodine site. Go check it out. Go pick up some stuff. There you go. Also, folks, we have another giveaway. This is very exciting. We are giving away a One Step Closer, This Place You Know LP on limited color vinyl from Run For Cover Records. They're label mates with Fiddlehead. And we're going to give away the record. So come back in segment three to hear how to win. Isn't that exciting? I'm super amped on it. I'm trying to win. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we love that record. We talked about it a few episodes ago. And folks, earlier this year, Ryan Savitsky and Brian Talapan of One Step Closer were on our show, episode 48. We got the scoop on This Place You Know and talked about all kinds of great stuff. Go back into the archives and check it out. And once again... Come back in segment three to hear how to win the record. Let's see what else is going on. Tommy. Yes. Have you watched the new Kid Rock video? I did. (laughs) I did. Now, give me your thoughts. Okay, so this is what I wrote down. There's a lot of swearing in the beginning. (laughs) It's odd. It's like almost like too much. In the first verse, there's like this random fuck you he throws in that it's just so trite and you can tell no thought went into it at all it's kind of awkward also there's a point in the song where he says i'm detroit till i die and in my head i'm going does detroit still claim him like do they are they okay with this like because <laughs> in, in my head i'm going i don't i don't think that you're welcome there anymore however i will say this it stays true to what i think about kid rock you know that meme of him like on the beach like walking with the American flag shorts on like, yeah, it's that, but in video form, like it's, it's everything you thought it was going to be plus more cowboy hats. (laughs) It's like, uh, it's like a dumb guy, AI generation. Like they, they did all the most basic common things that you hear those types of people say like participation trophy. You're not going to tell me how to live there. It's, is that what happens when you get to that stage? You just become parody? Is that is that what is that what happens? Actually, I actually was going to bring this up. A lot of the comments were like Weird Al brought me here. And Oh yeah. You go into that because I actually don't know the backstory on that. Did Weird Al like go, "Hey, I couldn't have done this better" or something like that? Do you do you know what the story is? Here this is the perfect summation of this video, Tommy, on Twitter. Uh, yesterday, Weird Al posted, to everyone that's congratulating me right now on my new Kid Rock parody video, <laughs> let me clarify, that's not me. That's actually Kid Rock. Okay. Um, I will say this. There is a gold rope necklace that he has in a couple of the shots, which might be the thickest gold rope I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's like thicker than Run DMC. Like, it is gigantic. It it has to be a $200,000 necklace. And I'm like, holy shit. And then I go, never mind. This idiot has sold 
you know, the 40 million records. And I kind of don't know where to go with this because there's too, almost (laughs) too much to say. He even includes things like he does like the breaking news thing in the middle of it. It's almost like a Fox news, like this just in like that kind of thing. Does he know people are teasing him about this and he's kind of in on the joke or is he, is this like a big middle finger to everybody being like, I don't care what you think. I'm doing what I do. Like, I, I don't know how to interpret any of this. He know. I think he just does what he does. And I'm sure people giving him shit just, it probably makes him happy. I'm sure he enjoys it. But speaking of big middle finger, that was one hilarious part of the video when he yeah. blasts off into outer space on a giant middle finger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That was so ridiculous. I, I will say, uh, the, like the mu- musicianship behind it's not bad. Like there's some there's some pretty cool parts that t- musically that are pretty decent. But he seems like uh, he's a crazy person that has kind of gone into that like bubble phase where everybody around him's being like, "Yeah, kid, you're doing it right. This is going to go fucking great." Like, you know, like at, like the end of Elvis, where they're like, "Yeah, kar- yeah, Elvis, do some karate." Like he just doesn't get it like that. Everybody's kind of teasing him and he's just going along with it because everybody's kind of hyping him up, but I don't get it. I I honestly don't. Well, we're not the target demographic, Tommy, but listen, we're not going to figure it out today, but what we are going to figure out is what's going on with Patrick Flynn. Cause we're going to talk to him right now. Enjoy. All right, folks, we're here now with Patrick Flynn, Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. You know, you've done so much in music between Have Heart and Fiddlehead, and and you're doing a lot in life with teaching and everything else, and we're going to get to all that. But first, I got to know, how are you doing today? Uh, Pretty good. Um, where do I begin? Uh, <laughs> Lay it on us, Pat. We're here. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, today, today was fine. Today was just a fine day. Uh, did a little bit of, what did I teach today? I teach AP world history um, to uh, 10th graders. And today was, there's no like specific historical content uh, being taught today. It was a little expose, write argument, historical argument writing exercise. But also I try to inform them a little bit. This might be interesting to the listeners. There's like not many people really think about standardized tests and, and, and why like, they're terrible, <laughs> especially <laughs> if they're coming from like uh, a profit uh, place. And, you know, it would, it, it's the students don't seem to realize that like they've decided to take a course to prepare for an exam that has an economic incentive for people to not do well. Uh, they don't really get the whole bell curve thing. And, and uh, they also like not many people know, but um, there's uh, the the people like reading the essays that students write, <laughs> who are like colleagues in the world of history education. Uh, they kind of like have like an economic incentive to like read more essays, and they grade them over the course of a week. And sometimes they're, they're doing like fifty to like two hundred a day, and. You know, there's like monitors that step and say like you're grading too high or you're grading too low, like when you're doing the evaluation. So I was just letting the students know that like, you know, you're you're taking a course that wants that wants you to do poorly because if the test just shows 
mastery, no one will want to take it because it won't prove who is the 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 gold people and the bronze people. So like, um, I just let them know that like at, at the very least, and also like history educators around the country, even the world, come together at one place for a week. And rumor has it that there's a lot of inebriation taking place, and <laughs> you might as well be having someone who was drunk the night before evaluating your document-based question or a history essay the next morning. Uh, so it would behoove you as you're writing your papers to be to lead with clarity and to be <laughs> as coherent as possible. So anyway, I, that, that, that was my day and that, that felt strong. And then they went and wrote an essay and I told them to focus on uh, clarity. I know that Tommy is chomping at the bit to comment on this now because he is also a teacher. So Tommy, let, let's get into this a little bit. Okay, so I I worked for Kaplan. Oh, oh no, kidding! Oh wow! Oh my God! Let's. Uh, <laughs> I, I went to one of the Kaplan courses because I had been out of school for so long, and I just and I remember just being mesmerized because I was like, "Wait a minute, you could like I'm being taught how to like know nothing but do excellent." <laughs> yes, uh, that is the key: is learning to, and that's the problem that we have with a lot of just education in general is you learn how to take tests and not actually understand and apply information, which is really the point of education is to be able to like understand it and then say, Oh, okay, here's a new situation. Let me apply it to this new situation. I have a lot of really uh, similar thoughts about it. The only thing I will say that I struggle with is I don't think there should be written portions of exams anymore. Oh, wow. Interesting. Why? With the rationale that you had, which is there are people behind that grading who are inherently flawed <laughs> and, <Right. laughs> and motivated by or incentivized by either profit and or quantity. Um, yeah. So it's not... It, it, it's not an objective reading. Um, mm-hmm. If you oh, had yeah. a if you had a singular person doing it, um, I remember reading a study. This is one of the things I told kids always. Um, now, when I taught for Kaplan, I I taught for um, the LSATs for okay. law school, mm-hmm. and it was like the longer you write your essay, the better off you are. And the kids were like, "Really?" And I'm like, "Yeah, but it doesn't make for the large part like." The, the written portion is ungraded. Like somebody may or may not read it and it may help your score if they feel like it's something that's pertinent. But if you tank the other three sections, it doesn't matter. Like you could write the most eloquent thing in the world. It's not going to help you. But I think what we don't teach kids anymore is how to think critically. And I think it's an unfortunate thing because I, I see a lot of kids that are like, well, wait a minute, how do I eliminate you know, this, these three answers. And it's like, it's not about elimination. It's, it's, it's about knowing the information in a way that allows you to look at the information they give you and say, Oh, there's the close confuser. That's the one they want you to pick. However, the correct answer is this. So yeah, I have a hard time with that. Oh yeah. I I can't imagine. Like I, I kind of became, I had been out of school for a while playing music and I wanted to get back into the game, so I wanted to prepare for the GRE. So I, I did take a Kaplan course, and it really I, – I took a lot from it, but a lot of, like, 
kind of <laughs> uh, stuff that has made me a little resigned about uh, our gatekeeping institutional uh, exams. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I try to share that with my students. And, and then because of that, I actually, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept or the skill of argument mapping, um, but uh, it's, it, it's really been shown to like significantly uh, advance one's ability to perform on something like the LSAT and, and basic and like, you know, real rich critical thinking assessments. But it's one of the more useful skills that I've introduced to my students that they kind of struggle with at first, but it's, it's essentially teaching them the basics of logic and reason and how to like, how to, how to like get the, get like an x-ray vision of like a complicated text. And, uh, but I, w- I wouldn't have been so drawn to that had I not learned, of uh, kind of the, uh, the the problems of those big standardized test assessments. How old were you, Patrick, when you decided you were going to start teaching and get back into education? I guess have heart was over, right? Yeah, but you know, I I, I feel super lucky because I just um, I was really drawn to my middle school history teacher, Mr. Hall. He had a uh, a really exciting way of teaching history that kind of made it more investigative and and very much so skill based. I mean, I, I do remember there being like, "Here's background information, and I want you to memorize it." Uh, and that was an experience. But there was this little twist that helped us kind of go like like I I'll, I remember the that uh, I, I just vividly it was like. 30 years ago or something like that, I guess, or, or like 28 years ago, it's whatever it was, whatever age you are in seventh grade. And we had like, this room was set up like a, what, a, like a senior thesis course uh, in college. And we were like in a seminar and we were discussing the extent to which um, the U S government was fully aware that the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor. And like, we, it was like, I, I remember like, and I, and I thought that that was just like how you did history. Uh, and it was like in th- that, what you saw in the textbook was just a little like idea of how it could have been. And then the primary sources are there for you to make your own decision and then make, make your own argument. And I was just like, this is amazing. This is totally great. And I just was so passionate and, and, and excited about history I just, you know, I won the history fair every year and I was just, and it was really important for me to like find something that I love in the concept of school because I, I kind of started out a little bit behind kids. And then like when I moved back to Massachusetts in the second grade, so I like really clung to that, but I was just so excited that I loved it. But then I got to high school and I hated it. Uh, I, like I, cause it was just pure lecture based and it was very kind of like the teacher would talk to the one kid who knew stuff. And it was like, that was the best, the, the height of it being a back and forth discussion. I, I bring, I give all this context because it was a combination of being so extremely excited in middle school to teach history to the point where I was thinking, I want to do this at like combined with enduring four years of just like, kind of lousy half-hearted teaching of history and there was something about like I was kind of inspired but I don't want to say bad teachers but like not good history teachers I was inspired by them because I I was given a non-example and I could see I like I mean I just like hated I went back to like really hating school and I and but I'm, I'm kind of grateful that because I 
I turned towards punk music and, and punk and hardcore culture, uh, because I hated school so much, but, um, I definitely, as early as middle school, I wanted to teach history, but I became a little bit more, uh, intense about that interest, at, uh, in high school. Uh, and then when I got to college, uh, you know, history became alive again because it was more involved and less lecture based and more discussion and argument based. And, and then I, and then I saw the, I, I was able to kind of travel th- throughout a lot of the world. And I really kind of despised just how inaccurate all like the, typical American perspectives of the world outside of the United States. And that just kind of pushed me towards really getting in to be involved in the project of, of teaching uh, history Uh, and, and, but doing it in a way that was like really kind of uh, potentially inspiring in the way that Mr. Hall uh, had inspired me when I was in middle school. So I, I, I feel really fortunate to have always wanted to do that. Whereas I have peers and family members who, in some respects to this day, are like, I don't know what I'm passionate about um, now in their 30s. And that, that's okay. And, and uh, But I, for some reason, I, I just, I've always wanted to do this. And I feel real grateful to be doing it. Yeah, it's interesting that you've always had this interest and you're winning history awards in grade school. So how do you... How do you go from the trajectory of history into frontman of a hardcore band? Uh, yes, it was. It was like I, I kind of like I was saying. Like I, I just, I, I was, I hated my history teachers in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I, and but it wasn't just them. I just um, and I and I and I'm sure they were fine. And it was different technological context and teaching history then was a little bit different. But I had been shown a, a way that you could do it. Um, but what really angered me was that I was like an unconfident kid in, in my learning. And I became very con- like not confident, but excited and passionate about learning. And then I just, I felt like that was kind of denied to me. It was like a kind of like a gatekeeping, like, Oh, like only the, the, those who know can be interested in history. And I just felt back on the outside of that. And um, I was also an army brat. I moved around a bunch and like in the first seven years of my life as uh, my older brother and older sister did as well. So we always kind of had a little trouble like coming to new places where there was already a built in like sense of like community and like, and then joining in on that community. And that's just kind of always stayed with me. Like to this day, I, I'm well liked by my colleagues and I like my colleagues, but I've been where I've been teaching at my school now for 10 years and I have not once had lunch in, in the, in the teacher's room. Uh, (laughs) Not, and it's, it's because I'm busy. I also don't like to eat, but like, I just, I just never really jived well with school spirit. Uh, And that's a little bit of army bratness in there. Um, But I just remember being in high school being like, God damn it. Like I thought, you know, I thought I was, I, I thought I was smart, you know, like, like middle school made me feel like I was someone who was capable of like doing well and, and like, you know, trying hard and seeing the fruits of like, of your efforts, you know, uh, come about. And I just, you know, in addition, my, my brother and sister had a very eclectic taste in music growing up in the nineties in like, you know, a little bit older than me. So you, you add that kind of alternative takes and, to music culture with a hatred for high school. Um, I just, and there was a local, a thriving local hardcore scene. And I, 
I just, uh, like those, I think that that's the causal equation of why I, I wound up there. Uh, and I also sucked at skateboarding. So like, <laughs> so like, like I, I could go to the skate park and be like, ah, well, I like the culture sort of, I'll just do the music stuff. That's that, that's kind of that. So we have this perfect equation of you getting into hardcore. So, uh, what was have hard the first band you were in? Uh, no, I was, uh, I did, um, I, I, the first band I was in was called the action taken. It was, uh, a local, uh, new Bedford hardcore act with two singers. Uh, my, me and my best friend, Ryan Hudon were, uh, the singers and I was the original like singer. And then I quit and joined this kind of conflict style punk band called danger field. Uh, that wasn't like, it wasn't about the band. It wasn't a reference to Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna I, say. <laughs> I, I actually just discovered the origins of that name, which is, uh, makes for a nice digression. I asked the bassist who I hadn't seen in 20 years. He came out to a fiddle, fiddlehead show in LA uh, a, a few weeks ago or a month ago. And we were just chatting. And, and I was like, yeah, why did Ben, our guitarist, why did, why did he call it that? And he's like, like, man, we were just getting wicked high in like this abandoned roller coaster area where no one was around, and he was just so high, and he's looking around at, the, at like the field that the the roller coaster rides were in, and he said, "Man, like this is like a really dangerous field. Uh, it's like a danger field." <laughs> and I, <laughs> it was so stupid. And like I was like, "That's why I was." And, she's like, and so we just rolled with it. So I, I, I left the action taken and I, I gave the band members Ryan Hudon, who they did not know. I just said, Hey, he's my best friend and he likes hardcore and he would make a good match. And then I left him in the garage <laughs> and I went to Dangerfield practice. But then Dangerfield kind of, the, the guitarist Ben was looking for a little bit more outwardly politically influenced lyrics. And I think I was, uh, I didn't think I was able to kind of pull that off effectively at that time. And so I, I kind of wanted to write about, I, I guess I, I was, I was really inspired by the song Betray by Minor Threat. It was just like, like a song about friendships going awry. Cause that was like immediately relevant to me as like a pretty average suburban white boy at the time. So like I, and I wanted to write about what I knew and the action taken was kind of like in, you know, inspired by like, you know, the youth crew stuff with a little bit of melodic hardcore, like Bane in the mix. And so I, 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 they were like, just, just be the second singer. Just we'll have two singers. And that was only okay because the local uh, kind of like, there was like another local band that uh, comprised of like much older elder statesmen, not much older, but they were the elder statesmen. They were called civil defense and they had two singers. And just because they had that, it kind of greenlighted what I think is quite possibly like the worst thing you can do for a hardcore band, <laughs> which is, which is have two singers. I like, I'm not, I'm not knocking on that. It's just like never kind of works. Um, even when like you have a guest singer and they come up on stage, like I've, I've done that a couple of times with friends bands. It's all right, but I'm, it's always just kind of strange when there's like two. If you're going to do that, you have to get on and like right back off. Like I, I saw Vane before at St. Vitus and they just had this guy come up and like scream his head off and hype everybody off. And then he was gone. 
yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You just got to do that. That's the move. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so the action taken was the was that was that first first band that, that I had done, and then we, uh, me and Ryan ended up getting kicked out very dramatically. Um, and so, wait, ha- why did you get kicked out? That's a good question. Uh, rehashing twenty year beef. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> no. Uh, um, uh, it's all good uh, in the hood now, but I think you know, like I, I had I had started Have Heart as like a project, a side project uh, in the the summer before we were kicked out. Like we were, I remember it was like the fall of two thousand and two or something like that. But when we got kicked out, but I think there was just kind of like general friendship decay at the time. We were like fourteen or you know, we were like fifteen, sixteen, and. Uh, you know, in for us circle of friends in New Bedford, it was kind of a big deal looking back on it now. But like, you know, we got the boot and I don't fully recall, but like, I just, I think they wanted to go in a more metal direction. And uh, they changed the name to, I think it was End It All. And they definitely were going in a more metal direction. I th- I'm pretty sure that that was what it was, but there was some friendship decay in there. And I just remember getting the phone call. Being like, uh, yeah, we we want you out. We're <laughs> being like, well, fuck you. I started this band. I came up with the name, and uh, and I didn't I didn't say that. I was just like, yeah, all right. And then I called up Ryan, and he was like, ah, Jesus, like you know, this is such bullshit. We're the fucking singers of the band, like you know, like not that that totally makes the, the biggest difference, but you know, you, when you're when you're 16 and that something like that happens, it's a it, it, it's a huge deal. And so like, I, I just remember feeling pretty pathetic about it because, you know, like I was saying before, like I turned to punk and hardcore because I just felt so out of step with school. And so when this sort of happened it, in the context of being 16 or 17, it was like, it was a big deal because we had, the band had been around for like three years and I was you know, three years is a long time when you're 15. It's like a fifth of your life. So like, you know, that was kind of a big deal, but it definitely, um, it lit this insane fire in my brain in the initial day or like with, with Half Heart. I had that as a side project and it was in, kind of intended to deal with the, uh, the intensifying metal uh, metallic sound of it, the action taken, I wanted to do something a little bit more traditional or a little more in the reign of youth of youth, like youth of today and 10 yard fight and, and eventually become a little bit more melodic. Uh, I remember I had seen that band stay gold from, from Seattle the summer of 2002. And I was like, these, I was like, this is what I would like to be eventually. But that was like kind of like my plan with with half art. But when we got kicked out of that, I was like, "Oh my god!" and and I just remember within weeks writing the lyrics to uh, like the first song we ever wrote called Lionheart, and I, I showed it to my girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, and she she like I I printed them out. I was like, "What do you think?" And she's like, "I love them. Can I put them in my agenda?" <laughs> <laughs> like like she taped them on her agenda. I don't know if people kids still. I, yeah, kids kind of do have that, but everything's so digital now. But like, I remember seeing her, or I remember her asking to do that and feeling like she was like, "These are really good lyrics, and like, these are so cool." And like, you know, like she was so supportive and motivating for me. And then, but her, but it, she really made an impression 
by when she taped them into her agenda, that made me feel real special. And, uh, you know, cause like now I'm like taped in her agenda, you know, it's like a real compliment, <laughs> but, um, so, and then that, that was a huge gusto. I'm, and I'm just kind of having some hindsight revelations of like, that was like actually a big deal getting kicked out and having her say those lyrics are, are pretty good. So like, I, I, I just was insanely passionate after getting kicked out and it wasn't necessarily out of like vent, like revenge, but like, this is an interesting thing I haven't thought of in like 20, like uh, 20 years probably. But like we, on our first website, which was like, I, I don't even know what the hell happened to it. It was like a dot CJB dot net type of thing. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the, uh, but, uh, Oh yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, like Angel Fire and and yeah. Sunset Strip pages and all that stuff. I think that's even older. Yeah, yeah. So um, I remember Angel Fire. Yeah. Uh, so in our description, we, I, I think like HowsYourEdge.com hosted it, our website or something like that. But like in our somewhere in our description of like like it was like you know it sounds like or for fans of yeah it was for fans of and it was like. Like youth of today, ten yard fight, and Swizz, and <laughs> like we sounded nothing like Swizz, but I was super adamant about that because I had heard there was a band that called like when I was like fifteen or sixteen, like someone from New Bedford hardcore scene had said, you know, if you like Dak Nasty, you should hear the Demon version of them, and I was like, the Demon version of them, I was like, yeah, you didn't know that their original singer got kicked out of Dag Nasty and they used his songs on Can I Say? And I was like, what? <laughs> and then, I was like, seriously? And then they played me the song Nine by Swizz, which is like the lyrics are just, don't patronize me with apologies, you son of a bitch. Uh, the devil has many faces, yours just fits. It's just that line with a couple more, like for now my energy, yeah, yeah for now my energies will be devoted to moving mountains and all the feats of impossibilities. And I like, and it's just those lines repeated, 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 repeated. And I just remember listening to that constantly when I'd go running and like, and just like with like seething rage for getting kicked out of my band. <laughs> so when, when, when someone said like, who's, who is half art for, uh, for fans of, I was like, Swizz. And then like, you listen to it. It sounds like nothing like what Jason Farrell could, could do. Right. Um, but, um, the, the energy uh, and the passion, like whatever, if it was just not necessarily hatred, but just anger was definitely present in there. They were an inspiration, just not the not the musical sound, but the attitude. It, it, absolutely, yes. Yeah, that's incredible. First, let me say this. You sound incredibly mature because if I had gotten kicked out of a band at 18 that I had been in for three years, I would have said, fuck you, and these are my songs, and thrown a fit. But you, it sounds like you just kind of directed that energy into the new thing, which I think is cool and a, a mature move. I, I guess so. Like, I, I don't know where that impulse came from. Cause I, I, me I remember I was laying on my mom's bed and I got a phone call. I remember exactly where I was. It was like, it's like the JFK assassination. <laughs> yeah. I've gotten uh, those phone calls. So I know how it is. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. Um, I don't know where that impulse comes from, but I, uh, I don't know. I, I had the long view, I guess. <laughs> That's great. And tell us about the beginning of Have Heart. How did it go in the beginning? When did things start picking up? It, it was um, terrible in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> How so? Uh, well, 
I don't know how to play drums, but like even now, but I definitely didn't know how to play drums when I was 16. Um, but yet I was teaching the drummer how to play drums. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can do the math on that equation. Uh, <laughs> our, our drummer was, um, he played, he had a drum set and he played, he, he could, he could play on the drums, but he, he didn't have the, the musicianship that is required to be called your calling yourself a drummer. And he didn't understand like certain beats in hardcore. And like, I like, like what was like a mosh beat or like a fast beat. See, I don't even really know myself. So it was like this kind of like real blind teaching the blind. And like, I remember having that practice and we had like, you know, like our guitarist who was one of my oldest friends, Eric, Saint, the original guitarist, Eric St. Jake's, he like, he knew how to play guitar. And I just remember this feeling at one of like the first practices we were having that like, as like, I just remember feeling like, like as I was telling the drummer how to do something like, and I didn't know how to do it myself, I could feel Eric being like, this is one of the more pathetic things I've ever witnessed in my life. <laughs> and like, and he's like, and I'm, cause Eric had another band and he's like, I have way, I just remember th- him thinking, like, probably thinking I have way better things to do than this right now than watch like these two, like, you know, like the, the blind, te- like, you know, tell the blind how to see, like, it was just like really, um, uh, an imperfect kind of pathetic moment. Uh, but so, that first year, now the other guitarist, his name was Ryan Willis. Um, Ryan Hudon had not yet joined the band. Uh, we had our like have our kind of started with Ryan Willis, Eric St. Jakes, Ryan Briggs, and Justin Paling. And like we we had like one, I think we had two practices, maybe. And Ryan Willis, after the second practice, quit. And enter Ryan Hudon. Ryan, so Ryan, Ryan Hudon is like a founding member. He just wasn't there for the first two practices. Um, and we, we, it was just a year of like me essentially lying to every member, uh, that like the, uh, that another member had an idea for a song and, and then like, just to get them to be like, all right, we'll go to this practice for this, like really, really bad idea and you know we're more excited to get like taco bell after this you know like it was like i had because then no one like really lived close and like to each other well not not they didn't live far away but there's just everyone's like in a different town in the same region of you know the south coast massachusetts and so like i was like driving people and, like going to like the likes of you know like middleborough and then i drive to you know Bedford and then I drive everyone to Wareham and then I have to drive everyone back and like I didn't have a car so I had to like borrow you know my sister's car or I had to like get you know convince Ryan to drive he didn't want to go like it was just like a lot of like no one wants to do this because why it sucks this whole thing totally sucks and like and then eventually I got after like a year of trying we got to the point where we could record a demo which was I believe like in our, my first year of college or something like that. And, um, yeah, I was after a lot of finally driving around the state and pulling together some pretty embarrassing practices. We, uh, got to record the demo. We only had like three, 
I think it was like four songs and you know, it was, it felt like, like, ah, uh, let's just sort of do this for Pat type of thing. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it was like, ah, uh, you know, he's, he's passionate about this. He kind of believes in it. But, um, and I remember, uh, two seconds, like before we went to record, Brian Hudon was just noodling on his guitar, uh, like a, like a, a riff that I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, and I said, Hey, just do that. And then let's like repeat it. And it became the, uh, the intro that we, we had for on our demo. And I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that like, if, if that wasn't on our demo, we really wouldn't have ever caught anyone's attention. Uh, because like that, intro that we had which is just like like just it's very basic it, like it's just like a little mosh riff and but for some reason it was like the only thing that people in the in the first year of playing shows that people actually responded to and it kind of became like oh they're the band with that that fun intro that where the singer yells break and that's that's like the sing along point and it was like something people remarked on and <laughs> like it was amazing to me that we played that at the reunion shows cuz i was like i that's a like i never really thought that this would ever be played in front of anybody let alone 10,000 people like uh, in Worcester so so that was interesting but i i do think it's just an I'm really, I can't, you'll never know, but like that really was like the only thing that people really responded to outside of like a cover, like covers that we would do. So if you, if you took that out of the equation, it's a good chance that like we would have never really caught on because that was like the buzz of the band in the first like year, this like like silly, stupid intro, um, which, you know, it's just, you know, serves as a nice little lesson for, people starting bands, uh, you know, like, you know, to kind of go with what just sort of feels right. And, uh, you know, never considers something too small. Isn't it funny? You just never know what people are going to respond to. No, no, not, not at all. <laughs> like that, that intro was literally like the day we were recording. Uh, I was like, Oh, let's just make that an intro. And we went with it. And it actually kind of made the members of the band kind of like, yeah, this is fun. This band isn't like a complete joke. <laughs> that's amazing so how did things start picking up i mean how do we move into the the solidified sound and the full lengths and bridge nine and all that a lot of relentless playing and but also like not just like playing and dipping and but like really trying to make connections uh where we would play like getting to know the locals of the like the band the people in the local bands in in like maine or New Hampshire or like Conway, I remember like Conway, New Hampshire and um, Bucksport, Maine uh, and Long Island. We, we, we made like some early connections there. Like we just, and like it's all around Massachusetts and Rhode Island and Connecticut as well. Like we just got to know people and talk to them and, and they were, it was never like cool people. Like it was never people like in like the bridge nine death wish locking out scene. Like, you know, we knew those people and you were like, fine. But like, we, we weren't like at the time, there was a lot of people who would kind of be a little like suck ups to whatever was kind of like fashionable and more, more influential. And not that 
we, again, not that we disliked anybody in there. So we just, I just don't think we came off as like posturing brown nosers and we weren't kissing anybody's ass. Yeah. Yeah. And we were just like, I was going to do our own thing. And we're, we'll like, we don't care who we play, play a show with. We'll play with anybody. And I think that that made us a little bit more readily available. So it was a little bit of constant, like, you know, just sort of like, we were like, kind of like the store brand cereal, but like there was like uh, on like the, the bottom shelf, but there was just like so much of it. And it was like spilling on the aisle that you kind of, had to see us because we played so much. <laughs> it's like a, a, a very like <laughs> excellent analogy. Yeah, I guess. I'm just like, man, like I'm I'm, I'm speaking so poorly of our <laughs> of our early days. But no, we we just played a lot and we liked. We had a lot of fun. And then I, I there was the, the first kind of kind of major turning point was uh, we played a show at the University of Connecticut and. It was like we had been playing the hell out of our demo and our first seven inch came out on Think Fast Records and it had come out earlier that summer and people like really were singing along to all of the songs. All When I say all of the songs, I meant four songs. Um, and we d- did like an inside out cover and it was just like the first like kind of like, whoa, there's like a sea of people not a sea but like a pond of people singing along and i remember driving home it was like you know uh later that night and like me and ryan were like well this this is totally crazy like i can't believe people like it was like 25 people singing along which was huge at that time like all actually singing along not just moshing but singing along um and that was the first big one and then it, it became like there was a video of that show and that was just went on like whatever, maybe just, I think YouTube in its first few years. And so people saw that and that stuff still has an effect today. Um, you know, I saw it with Fiddlehead when we played the program uh, like a few years ago and it like the shows just had like that Yukon show. It just had this kind of like, it really wasn't that big of a deal, but the optics of it and the framing of it made it seem like there was a you know shitload of people. So that was a huge turning point. And then like, it seemed like every show we would play from on that point, you'd have more and more people we didn't recognize trying to like recreate that, that show at the university of Connecticut. And then that kind of put us on the radar of um, bridge nine. And I just, I'll never forget getting uh, just this very random email from Chris Wren saying, uh, would you like to do uh, a record with us? So, you know, I said, what are your plans for the future? And would you like to do a record with us? And that that was like the biggest turning point for us uh, because, you know, Bridge Nine was pretty well established with his catalog already at that point, just, you know, with American Nightmare. And, uh, you know, they, they were recognized on multiple continents. And like we, you know, so like we were like, well, that's, that's well. That's that's totally cool, and that was that was really how things just took off. And then because of that seriousness of like potential audience, we um, we had a couple lineup changes. We got a you know our original drummer. Uh, he, he he like joined another band, and then like uh, didn't have much time for us. And he still really kind of had improved in his playing. So you know we you know we get we. It, we were not ruthless because I, I remember getting the 
uh, heave ho with ruthlessness in my first band. Um, so like we, like he was like missing practices and like we were trying to write an LP and like, you know, the first stage is taken seriously and he just wasn't showing up to practices. So we felt after giving him ample warnings and like, you know, five, fifth and sixth and seventh strikes, we were just like, Hey, listen, it's not going to work out. And, um, we had Sean Costa join the band and our um, current guitarist at the time was just there for a, you know, about a year. He was on the what counts record, uh, Ben Kelly. Uh, he parted ways as well. And we, uh, Kay Asui joined the band. And so they, Kay and Sean were, were significantly advanced in their playing and their writing. And because of the scope of potential scope of, or of the audience that would be listening to us, we just really decided to take it as, as seriously as we could, but to also change up, try and allow different influences to shape the band. And then that from that point on, it was just this kind of giant snowballing, I guess, because the LP, the first, that first LP did connected extremely well with people. Right. And uh, Bridge Nine and all of those bands was like, I would say that was the next dominating force in hardcore in the early 2000s. You know, we had the late 90s into the early 2000s. There was all the really melodic, metallic stuff and Trust Kill records and all that. And I, in my mind, the next big era is Bridge Nine and kind of the back to basics, hardcore the, and the tough stuff, the youth crew stuff, the melodic, like all those influences. What was it like? What was it like at that time? And I'm asking because I, I wasn't around, really. Like, I, I still listened to heavy music, but mostly older stuff I liked. And I was really into post-rock and post-metal and mm -hmm. exploring different things. What was the state of the hardcore scene then? Like, I kind of fell away after the band I was touring with broke up because there was a lot of violence, a lot of fights. And it seemed like no matter when, where we went to a show in the tri-state area, there was just always a problem and everyone got tired of it. So, you know, during Have Heart and the first LP and everything, how was it then? Yeah, yeah. so to this day, I, I'm still pretty repulsed when I see like, um, like unnecessary violence at a show. It's just to me like the epitome of like locker room bullshit. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I just never wanted to be a part of. I remember playing, going, going to a show in Fall River one time, and it was like, you know, some like metalcore bands with some hardcore bands, and there was like a local, like high school new metal band that played, and then like the high school new metal band had like attracted some people who weren't, you know, familiar with the social contract of like hardcore metalcore etiquette of moshing so they interpreted you know they were like quote-unquote push pitting or whatever and like they it was just so stupid and innocent and they, they just interpreted like like a wildly aggressive move as any normal person would you know in the way that like i just wouldn't go anywhere near that i'd be in like the other side of the room because i just don't want to be involved with like literally people stage diving or like just literally punching people in the face who are standing on the side, like actually aiming for their, their faces. Like I was just, I don't want to be anywhere near that whatsoever, you know, but the local band didn't get that. And I just remember seeing this kid, uh, you know, responding to me like, what the hell is your problem? And then like this swarm of idiots, fucking asshole idiots, pummeling this kid. And he somehow manages to break free of getting just like, 
gang beating on and and his face is like just spurting blood and he's running across this venue and i just remember being i was 15 at the time it was like right before, right on the time that Havar is about to start and i'm just like i was so enraged that this was like the thing that i had become a part of uh because when i first joined it the first initial scene that i really fell in love with was just it was aggressive but it understood the power of aggression and the responsibility of aggression uh, and to hold, like to use it wisely uh, and effectively and, and, and meaningfully. And I just remember being like, what the fuck is this bullshit? And I say all that as context for understanding why I kind of like was the way I was or, and wrote the things that I wrote and said the things that I said at shows. Because at the time you would ask like, what was it like in the early 2000s? It was gross it was stupid and 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 like there's a lot of that stupid violence unnecessary violence that was embarrassing uh and i just wanted to be as emphatic as 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 possible with like saying like this is this is moronic there's nothing punk about this there's nothing hard about it it's pure stupid childish emotion and it makes the culture look Nothing more, uh, more advanced than the like the dickheads at school that I was like why I wanted to have nothing to do with that were like you know like assaulting me in like my first few weeks of high school like you know so I, I like I, that's why I, like I wrote songs like Armed with a Mind and like you know and that shows would just be as emphatic as possible because that was a pretty prevalent but I also wasn't trying to preach to the choir I was also like I was happy to be playing with bands of that ilk. And when we would go on tour, I'd watch the locals and, uh, you know, like I get enraged because I'd be like, what the fucking fuck? This is happening. Like you're still do. Oh, this is not a, a, this isn't even a Massachusetts thing. This is a, this is a Kentucky thing. This is a Missouri thing. This is a, um, this is a Texas thing. This is an, a, a Georgia thing. This is a California thing. This is that's interesting that you say. So it's like it was happening all over the place. Because in my mind, I'm like, oh, maybe it was just the tri-state area. But this sounds like a national thing. Yeah, it, it was just, it was just ignorance and, and like. I, I just thought that the culture kind of lost the plot or like my interpretation was off and whatever it was, I wasn't about to, to do this thing. You know, like I, I remember being kind of moved and then unmoved when I watched um, American hardcore, there's this interview with Ian McKay and you know, I have a, so much respect for, you know, but he said like, you know, why did you leave hardcore? And he had said that, you know, like, you know, what, what, like, why did you, and he says, like, you know, people would say, like, you know, why did you check out on hardcore? And what he says is, I didn't check on a check out on hardcore. Hardcore checked out on me. And I remember thinking, like, oh, that's a really good way to put that. You know, he got sick of the violence of the early 80s and he wanted something more. And I remember just sort of thinking, yeah, wouldn't it have been better if, if, you know, it was like, Rather than this idea of like hardcore checking out on you, it's more like I refuse to let hardcore check out on me. And so I remember, and like, and I just to be clear, like I think that the guy did unbelievable, like limitless stuff. Like it, it advances for like getting rid of this kind of stupid ignoramus element of punk culture by way of with bands like Embrace and uh, Fugazi and even like like Palehead and Egg Hunt, those things were so cool additions. But I think at the time they weren't really thought of as punk or as part of hardcore. Um, 
as one might think of today. Nonetheless, though, like I remember watching American hardcore and being like, I get what he's saying. And I remember slight having this slight kind of like thought, like maybe I should just bail out on hardcore. I hate this. And I said, well, you know, if you, if you hate something, then, then you should try and fix the problem of it. And that's, that was very much so an underlying source of fuel for me with, with how far is that, you know, I wanted to play with bands that would bring in people from a scene that like I, I didn't agree with in terms of their, their etiquette. Uh, and, and I, you know, uh, to this day, I still feel incredibly strong about that. Uh, I, 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 but like, I, I, it's not just that I feel strong about like, you know, violence at shows. It shouldn't be the like shouldn't happen. But like, I feel very strongly about like people, like bands who might disagree with certain other bands or like you know scenes or audiences. They should they should really actually get together so as to kind of like better increase. And like the chances for communication or just kind of discovery. Cause I might've had some things wrong about like certain elements of the metal core scene that I later discovered were like, oh, I think I'm just kind of seeing this through like a, a pretty biased lens. And I was like, all right. So I sort of get that, but I still to this day, no matter what, like I, I just, I can't for a single second be okay with someone punching another human being in the face, like intentionally, especially if it's like, it's someone they don't even know, you know, like it just seems just wildly stupid. Yeah. And that, that exact story you told with the new metal band is like, we have an exact story like that. That kind of stuff happened a lot when you're mixing different groups of people who don't understand all the rules of mosh pits and all that stuff. And they're just trying to watch a show and then chaos breaks out because not everybody knows the quote unquote rules. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, I don't care how obvious the social contract is, you know, like the uh, unspoken rules in there. Like, I, like you just don't do that. It's just- exactly. Exactly. So Have Hard is on this freight train, right? We're touring all over the place. You've got the things we've carried. We've got songs to scream at the sun, right? Did you tour like internationally and stuff too? Oh yeah. Yeah. We went everywhere, but Antarctica and (laughs) not not much of a scene on that continent, but yeah, uh, we went, we went to, uh, you know, first started out going over to, uh, Canada, uh, and then, and then Europe. And then, and then we went to Japan and then we went to, you know, like, Australia and we would are always doing like big U S tours in between or another European tour. And we were in Australia and then, and then we decided to call it quits and do like this big giant actual world tour. Uh, like not just like the United States as some bands call their world tours or used to, but, uh, we, we got into, uh, you know, South Africa and we were apparently the first, um, straight edge band to ever play mainland China. Um, oh, wow. So that, that was kind of cool. Um, <laughs> uh, played Hong Kong. No one showed up. Literally zero <laughs> people showed up, which was nobody, which was kind of a surprise to us because like, we were like, well, you know, it's like a little bit more like, you know, on the, on the Western influence in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, it was, I don't know what happened. No one showed. <laughs> wow. But, uh, we had a bigger, gathering in Guangzhou, which is, uh, like an, an industrial city in mainland China. And then, but, you know, we played Korea, um, all throughout Southeast Asia, you know, Bangkok and Manila, where else did we play? It was just, um, 
yeah, it was, it was just so, it was great. And we were back to Australia. We, we were supposed to play New Zealand, but I, I was like booking all of that. And I just like, like we had a show booked, we had like everything set up and I just forgot to book the flight. <laughs> so like <laughs> we didn't go to New Zealand, uh, cause it, you know, it was all DIY, you know, and, but you know, we did that partly because we knew we were breaking up and we wanted to kind of go big and then go home. Why did you decide to break up? It seems like things were really moving. Uh, I wanted to be a teacher. I loved traveling with my friends and playing music and being creative, but I, I wanted to be a teacher. I, I like, I, like I had said before, like I was like seeing the world and I just found myself a, I just kind of felt my brain was kind of turning into mashed potatoes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I like just like the, the routine was something that it was too difficult for me to do the things that so many people are, are are capable of doing as they tour like throughout the year like you really have it's it's incredibly hard work to stay mentally sharp for that long and i i, I just like i just like when i get on the road i just eat i can't <laughs> I, I can't stop it like i i definitely have some type of like food addiction but i just don't stop eating i don't even like i i, I even to this day with fiddlehead goes out just we we just flew out to um chicago and we had like a five hour, just a five hour drive to Toledo. And I was eating for all five of those hours. Uh, like, so, and I remember thinking like, this is super unhealthy. So mentally I was, I could tell I was decaying. And then like physically health wise, I, I, I could tell it was, it was too hard for me to eat right and to, and to think right. And I just, you know, I, I wanted to be a teacher and I, the love of my life was at home and I hated not seeing her. How old were you at this time? 23, 24. See, again, I see that maturity coming through because 24-year-old out on touring the world in this successful band and people absolutely love you. And, you're, you know, at that young age, you're thinking, hey, I've got my girl at home. Uh, I got to think about my future. I want to teach. I think that's pretty mature for that age. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I yeah, I, I've I've always kind of been a little bit proud of like my decision making in that moment because you know we we and it wasn't just my decision making the the five of us were like this is the this is the time to pull the plug on this and it, it was a, a mixture of understanding um, like I think that my generation of hardcore has an interesting chronological placement because. We, when we started going to shows, we, the first, like someone my age and like who started going to shows in 1999, we, the first few years, you know, the mythology of bands like Youth of Today and Bold and like the Youth Crew was like, was still in place. And then they started reuniting and it was great. The Bold show at CBGB is to this day, one of my all time favorite shows I've ever been to. And it was, it was a reunion, but, you know, we also saw other bands reunite and like it, Mystery went away a bit and then some bands would continue to write and it just kind of took something away and it kind of felt like this um reunion core had emerged and like there was this like sense of like waiting on the past to come back and started to kind of reemerge and i didn't like that because when i started half art we weren't waiting on the past because we 
we were under the impression that the past doesn't come back. It doesn't repeat. And you have to just sort of forge your way through and you have to make, not remake the past, but make the future. And so, uh, and, but you can be inspired by it, but the past is never going to literally repeat. So just make your own, do your own thing. And that was why we did it the way that we did, because we wanted to experience like, like what it might've been like to see minor thread or to see judge and see these, like these massively influential bands and it, it impacted us. So we were thinking, you know, had minor threat or, you know, like verbal assault re- remained for like 10, 15 years, things would have been different. And there's a value to the short lifespan of some bands. So I think there was a combination of that and like, but our chronological placement could in that, time frame of hardcore could see that happening we could also see like what happens if bands stay around too long so we had that wisdom uh that was frontly available to us to to leave we also were very influenced by bands like tenure fight and mis who decided themselves also to break up at the height of their game so that was a factor but also like my my father grew up pretty fairly poor and he like really reminded me of the importance of of, of just trying to have like a sense of financial security uh, and, and how not having that. And I didn't grow up wealthy. I didn't grow up impoverished uh, by any stretch of the means, just a straight middle of the road, middle class, more on the lower middle class side than, uh, uh, than in that equation. But like, you know, I had, my father had built a life with some financial stability and he really, really, like emphasize the importance of that. And I just didn't see that lifestyle being something that I, I could make financially stable enough to have the things I also wanted, like a family and, and a career as a history teacher. That makes sense. It looks like a lot of thought went into your future, which is a good thing because I didn't start thinking about all that stuff until, I don't know, five years ago. So, but Hey, better late than never, but, um, Fiddlehead, another home run band. Now, there's a lot of time between Have Hard and Fiddlehead, yes? Yeah, it's a it's a fair amount of time. 2009 to, I think, Fiddlehead started in 2013. Like, we started writing together in 2013. Oh, okay. So, not... I'm thinking, like, the album releases, but it, it wasn't oh, like... yes, yeah. It wasn't, like, too long before you started playing music again. Yeah, you know, I, I had done some side projects, little, uh, little things. I started this, like, very traditional straightforward straight edge hardcore band called clear i had been already doing this kind of power violence band called wolf whistle and then i uh, want i wanted my love for swizz to reemerge, so i started this band called sweet jesus and in, in the mix of all of that i was trying to become a teacher but you know music being creative with friends was such a, a great hobby of mine and in there i i was like ah you know i'd be kind of interesting to try something that's a little bit more off the beaten path of hardcore and um my roommate at the time alex dow uh was uh you know just noodling on a riff and i i thought it was cool and i was like hey we should we should do a band we're both depressed uh guys and you just have this really kind of depressive riff and let's let's roll with it and see where it goes and uh and that was kind of like the genesis of, of fiddlehead why were you depressed well um my uh, longtime girlfriend, who is now my wife, uh, her and I had, had 
we, we were not together. And also like my, my father had passed away uh, suddenly only just about two years prior. And I was also kind of in this, like this stage of my career as like a brand new teacher that, you know, I was in grad school and then I was going into my first year of teaching and I just like, you just don't know if it's for you. And I, you know, I had said at the beginning of this conversation that I just absolutely always wanted to be a teacher, but there was a moment where I was like, I don't know if I can even do this. And then what the fuck am I going to do if I can't do the thing I've wanted to do since I was 10 years old? And so that was, I just remember, I haven't really thought about that, but that was really horrifying to me to think. And uh, it's just a lot of pressure and a lot of sadness and that like, a lot of pressure to succeed combined with some like, just like tragedy, like tragedy. Ooh, that's a, it's, it's a tough, <laughs> it's a tough combination. And uh, it made, but it definitely made for good, um, good art, the creation of it, I guess. That makes sense. And, you know, I read a quote from you in some article and you said, this is the thing that must be done for the purpose of mental health. And you were talking about making music. Because, I mean, you don't have an out for, like, drinking or getting high to deal with shit. Is that how you deal with stuff like this? Is it, you know, is it just creating for you? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I if you talk to most of my friends and people I've been in musical projects with, they'll tell you that I've, you know, said I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving music, like, every every month of my life. Like, you know, like I, or at whenever I finish an LP, I'm like, I'm over this. I'm never doing this again. I can't, it's too much. But, uh, and that's usually because of the crunch time of, I, I absolutely hate recording, but I love, uh, the, the writing process. But the equation for me is like having a practice and, and just working with some friends and getting a riff and then recording on my iPhone and then spending the next, two weeks or three weeks or a month until we practice again, just re-listening to it, re-listening to it, coming with an idea so that when we come back again, it's like, I'm thinking we should put this here and, you know, take this idea, shove it there, get rid of this. And, and I'm doing that while exercising and, and, and running, which is, so there's a, you know, it, it's, um, it's also just this, you know, it, it propels me to, to exercise, which I find really hard to do just, you know, <laughs> Uh, just as a busy person, but I know it's incredibly like necessary for me to survive and thrive, but it's just uh, a really positive distraction. Yeah, like, you know, there's a life as I've learned, as you get older, sadly loss uh, becomes significantly more prevalent and it's a fact of life. And I, I think that there has to be a way to not think about that from time to time and uh and to kind of push back on it uh in 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 is you know the antithesis of loss is is growth and 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 life and the creation and the, and, the, and the beginning of of new life and so art you know creating music is to me is like a way to kind of push back against that um that constant like never ending like losing of 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 life and, and time. That makes sense. And, you know, I used to rely heavily on drugs and alcohol. That was my thing for way too long. And once I put all that behind me, creating things mm -hmm. has been my focus. And now I throw myself into creative endeavors and it's just, you know, it's a million times more fulfilling than anything else 
I was doing before ever was. And I've always created and been involved in things, but now, but now I'm actually, I'm really doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's like a real focus and it's, uh, that's, that's it. That's it for me. You know, like I, like, I always kind of think like, whenever I watch like a show or a movie or I'm listening to a record, I can't, it's kind of sucks because like, I can't listen to it without thinking like, I want to do this too. (laughs) Like, like, Like I was just watching, um, for the second time, there's this really unbelievably amazing. It's, it's not really, it's, it's, it's a film. It's a, it's 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 a history film documentary by this um this Haitian guy named this Haitian guy he's like this amazing director his name's Raul Peck and his doc his four part documentary is called Exterminate All the Brutes which is based on this history book by um Sven Lind- this historian Sven Lindquist and it's like just this unbelievable masterpiece of like a creation of like it's just cinema and film and and historical documentation and 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 just history tell like historical storytelling and I'm like I was just watching it last night and I was like I need to do this. <laughs> and then like, I kind of like laugh at myself, be like, Raul Beck is like a world renowned documentarian filmmaker. I'm 36 years old eating, eating my son's vanilla ice cream at 1130. And I'm falling asleep. I'm pretty sure this becoming this massive filmmaker is not on the docket for the things to do in my life. But that like that imp- that like kind of desire to like create something big i think it's like it keeps me going cuz i'm like i'm like well how can i like create something else and like you know like i have like these plans for like you know like short stories and like you know working with friends and script writing and or, you know or like maybe doing a podcast one day or you know like putting together like an interesting um history myth and memory book on my time in hardcore that doesn't read like a memoir, but reads like a, like a, like a history, but as well as interviews like that, like my brain is kind of constantly going that direction because I have this impulse. Anytime I watch any piece of like any, some, anything that someone created to go, I want to do that too. And I, I, I wish everyone, like, I hope everyone has that. It's a, it's a great way to kind of like, get through traffic, at least for me, I'm like just sitting in traffic and I'm like, my brain can kind of go to this place of what else could I create in life? And, and don't get me wrong. It's like, I've been in, in ditches of life and just, I've seen like the, 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 the kind of hopelessness of like, you know, death and grief and it just hated it. It's, it's very comfortable. Um, and it, but it, you know, it leaves you just feeling just rather alienated and, you just without, you know, vibrancy. So like, you know, I'm really grateful to be, to kind of have like grabbed this like, um, sense of like creativity. And even if I only end up creating like some songs on like a, like a independent record label, you know, like I'm, I'm happy with that. Cause I, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. I mean, that's enough. It's great. And you know, so much of your personal experience has gone into the latest Fiddlehead record, Between the Richness. And, you know, I read a lot of interviews where, you know, you talked about dealing with the passing of your father and just all the personal experience that went into the record with uh, 
your mom telling the story about him coming home from Vietnam, I think it was, and all that stuff. And, you know, I read these stories about you. Does, is it hard to tell these stories over and over again when people ask you about them? Because I felt a lot of parallels in your story, and Tommy especially, and we're going to get to that in a second too. But like, I've experienced loss. Like my older brother died when he was young. He was diabetic. And I, I put myself in your shoes, Pat, and I thought about telling the story over and over again. And I got like very emotional. Is it hard? Uh, when you do these interviews to to revisit that and sing the songs when you're on stage and kind of revisit this over and over again? Or is it therapeutic as well? I'd say it's therapeutic. And, you know, like, and in, in, uh, I, I usually come back to this um, Cormac McCarthy quotation. I, I mentioned it a couple times, but it, 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 I just find it kind of useful. He, he said, tends to write about the things that bother him and then they don't after he's written about them. And he also has another quotation where he says that uh, anything that doesn't bring you to the brink of suicide isn't worth doing. (laughs) 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 So like, you know, something tells me that that might be his experience with writing and he comes out of that, not be bothered by the things that bother him. So like, not that that's my experience, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like I've I've written about the things so that I can master I I can become the master of the emotion. And so I you know like it's hard writing them and gathering the concept and then like you know sift what is this, what am I even writing about and then you're like oh my god I'm writing about that okay there I go uh, I, now I have to do it right. And what I don't what you kind of don't realize is that you're giving this topic, you know, in pretty considerable amount of time that you really should be doing, but the distractions of life don't allow you to, or the opportunities just in life don't just really get there. So, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a positive way to kind of look at that. But ultimately for me, it's like, I'm happy to go near that stuff because I, I don't want my, um, ancient psychological circuits of emotion to, to run me. I want my, my modern, uh, understanding of emotional like logic and and thoughtful reason to be the one in charge so i come out of the writing experience just i found to be on on top of those things and in other you know this band that i also have called wolf whistle uh is is really like the the evil twin of fiddlehead uh and and yeah <laughs> uh, and i cuz i've just really gone for it in terms of like writing about the derangement of grief on this one record called private hell. And, you know, it's, it's also because the music kind of conjures the, that darkness, but you know, I just, just really try to, con- I, like the things I wrote about on that record, like you would literally really, really, really truly bother me like in my own mind. And I, I, I wanted to write about them and I did, and I played them and, you know, I just, I've had time entertaining the thought in a, in a head on way. And it just makes things easier, you know, to chat about it with friends. And, you know, you get, I remember being a little, you know, sheepish and like after my dad died, uh, you know, just talking about him openly because I didn't want people to think like, Oh, you know, this is going to be weird. He's talking about his, his, his dad who died. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel that I don't have that anymore. And I'm so glad I don't because, you know, like if I, we're hanging with friends or family members. I, I want to just talk about my dad and, uh, you know, comfortable enough to, you know, 
demonstrate my emotion there, but it's not that I'm emotionless, but I just don't feel like I'm like completely destroyed. I definitely have, you know, moments of like kind of coming on like apart, but like I, I'm not like annihilated by mem- memory anymore. Like I might've been in the just raw moments of, of grief. That makes sense. There's a process. Like I used to jam it into every conversation because of reasons. I don't know. I guess I was trying to process it. And then I went to never talking about it at all. And it's like, now I'll just talk about it when I feel like it's appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. It, I Like I, again, I it just like, I, I, I just feel super, super lucky to have this outlet. Then there's the element of connecting with people and like, you know, the thing that always kind of bothers me, because it's not about the people, it's more about like the culture that we exist in. You know, like someone will say like, hey, like, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't mean to bother you, but like, you know, so this so-and-so thing happened in my life. And and I just, I always try, try and just be like, you're not bothering me by expressing <laughs> to me something that has happened in your life that you found connection on. It, that, that That it's incredibly warming to me. And and I'm hoping that it's warming for you. And I'm assuming it is because you're doing it (laughs) like, and, and that ultimately is like a total high five win-win all around. And I'm the lucky one, like in, if you know, like to sing about this type of stuff and have people sing back to it, which, you know, I'm, I'm happy to highlight the fact that there's probably a good chance that people are, drawn to uh you know listening to or were, or were initially drawn to listening to fiddlehead because of like you know like ex hardcore guy you know what what might have the initial you know uh, attraction have been had like had not been in this kind of rather prominent hardcore band so like you know like I, the point is like i feel lucky i don't feel like i've like you know i deserve every bit of attention and, like and i just it's not lost on me how like what an awesome situation I have where I have, you know, four like talented musicians who are creating a, a sound for me to like talk about my life to like in the, in the big pitfalls of it, like, and then people to sing, sing along to it, you know, and, you know, I'm really grateful for that. And I, I just, I also, I, I sing about it, you know, per, obviously initially for me, but also just to kind of, really tear out this like oftentimes like masculinity associated thing where you don't, you hold it in son. You don't talk about the the things that hurt, which is just a, a wonderful way to create like in a, an abusive asshole, uh, you know, who's, <laughs> who like will only know how to deal with the, like the tsunami of emotion in like, in a like in a single like abusive moment that flares up and then goes away for, you know, years and then flares up. So like, I, like I, I'm happy to sing in front of hardcore kids who are used to, you know, like rich or I'm sorry, like kind of superficial, like ideas of betrayal and, and like, you know, which I had related with, as I said before, um, when I was a kid, but to say like, in addition, <laughs> in addition to that, there's this pipeline where, you know, if you want to, if you want to sing about, how much you love your wife or your longtime girlfriend, you can do that and still be hardcore. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, like, I, like, and, 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 and it's good to express that, that happiness as it is really good to express that, 
this sense of devastation in a way that is maybe makes you uh, feel vulnerable. Right. There, there isn't like a blueprint. You, you can make the rules. You can sing about what's important to you and still have it be hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. To me, like, you know, I come back to Ian McKay's response to Thrasher magazine calling Embrace an emo band. And, you know, when he said like, you know, as if hardcore wasn't emotional enough, you know, like that to me was just like fucking poetry. And hopefully this balance out, uh, balance outs my slight criticism on Ian's comment on checking on checking out on hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in reading about you, Pat, I, there's so many stunning similarities to my my beloved co-host here, Tommy, from uh, reading Cormac McCarthy to teaching to uh, <laughs> the early loss of his father as well. And so, uh, Tommy, what what do you want to say or ask Patrick? Actually, one thing I want to start with is uh, I thought the way you describe grief as like waves coming over you is it's an extremely good way to explain it is that it comes in these very powerful kind of you just get slammed by it like you're you're normalized everything's fine and then something triggers you and you go oh my god this reminds me of input situation there i'm actually dealing with this now where my wife just lost her father about a month and a half ago and she's like, she, you know, she'll roll over to me in bed and she'll be like, how do you think about like Christmas without your dad? And I'm like, well, my dad died when I was five. So that's been 80% of my life. <laughs> so um, it's hard to kind of like quantify that. And she's like, yeah, but what does that mean? And I think the way you explain it in terms of like having some type of outlet is a, a really great way to kind of like tell people like, Hey, this is something you can do, but how do you put that into terms of like, what's usable from that? Like when you encounter grief, like, like where do you go with it? Like when you feel like, all right, I I'm getting this overwhelming wave of emotion. How do you then kind of like channel that into something else? Yeah, totally. Um, I know exactly how, and I <laughs> like, which sounds like probably annoying, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, and I got that one figured out. No problem. Uh, no, uh, the, on the waves thing, I like I just remember like someone telling me like grief operates in like the seven stages or five stages of grief. And, I, you know, it, it, it's a good idea. But like, you know, when you think of stages, it's like you go through it and then you're done with it and then you go through the next one. And I remember thinking like the first year after my, my, my father died being like, she's like these, all these stages are kind of happening at once in a single moment. <laughs> uh, I don't remember that being how video games worked when you would end a stage and go into the next one. So like, I, like, you know, just on the waves analogy, it's just, you know, you can get hit by one wave and then you got another wave crashing on your head at the same time. And then you're slammed and you can't even see the shore anymore. You know, you're just kind of overrun by it. But, and I, I've like lost, I remember losing myself pretty bad. You know, you just, you know, these things would just rip you. I, I've always kind of come back to in the, this, um, probably like most important song I've ever written is the, uh, the song, uh, heart to heart. It's the last song on our, uh, on our record. And, uh, it's very much so 
inspired by um there was this moment just it was probably like two months my my father died suddenly but there was this moment like about maybe two or three months before he passed and I, like my father after he retired from the army he was uh he he, he went into teaching he was uh, an english and and a uh, latin teacher and he taught Cormac McCarthy's all the pretty horses and he just, you know, revered him so much. And, um, but this is roughly around the time that the road came out and, you know, my father had finished it and, uh, you know, there was some pretty tough stuff happening at home with, uh, you know, my brother and whatnot. And it was kind of hard to deal with. And you know, I know it really kind of, um, was taking a toll on my, on my father. And, uh, we were, chatting but he was like across the way of the kitchen you know and his hands behind his back and we're chatting about the book the road and he had mentioned something like along the lines of like you know the goodness will come there's a line from that book who talks about the goodness will come or whatever and you know and then, and then he then he passed away and you know i kind of leaned on that memory and and i and like i remember him saying that because I remember, like, that, that really just stood out to me. And I, and I just would come back to that because I remember being like, you know, my father remarked on this in the book and then he passed away. And so I dove a lot deeper into the road. And, you know, of course it was relevant to me. It's about a father and son in the post-apocalyptic world and the, the father is slowly dying. Um just some light reading for those who haven't <laughs> <Yeah>. read it. Uh, <laughs> I love it. The movie and the book. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's very powerful, but you know, in it, um, you know, the, the, the dialogue between the father and son, will, I will just rip your fucking face off, you know? Um, and you know, like, you know, as the father's beginning to pass, the son is upset and he's saying, you know, you can still, you can still talk to me, you know, just, just talk to me. And, and, and I always come back to that. Um, and I just put that into that song, heart to heart, because it was really troubling to think, um, of the concept of, of, of me leaving and, and dying. And, uh, and my, uh, son, <laughs> like maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'll be young. Maybe so, uh, something will happen, but you know, and maybe I'll, he'll be too young to remember me saying something that would propel him to find this passage in a book that would infinitely help me communicate. You know, like you just feel as if the, you know, the world is not completely gone. Uh, and so, you know, I wrote that song as, as kind of like this dual overview of how, you know, I think my father wanted me to think of, you know, our, our communication and, and to see, look, look for the goodness and, and, and the poetry in life as, you know, you know, signs and just, or just cues to, to contemplate and, and reach out. And I just wrote that as like really a letter to, um, my son and and my daughter, uh, who I I didn't know was on the way at all, but I anticipated the possibility that I want my children to, uh, you know, kind of see that um, uh, life is is endless and and death is just this weird juncture in that in that endless uh, setup. I think that's uh, really powerful stuff, and I think that the the energy and the emotion and the feeling 
that you put into the music has a power. And I think I think that's why so many people have reacted to this latest album, you know? Mm. Because I, I remember seeing it everywhere. Articles, interviews, the shows, like there was such a reaction to it. So I have to ask, how how did that feel for you, Pat? I mean, like this was the it album of the moment. That's gotta feel great, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's totally cool. But you know, like there's a, a total utility when it comes to, you know, doing musical projects for me. And and it's uh and it's not popularity. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it like so like it not that that's like all that that was, but like I just you know, the positive reviews, like I'm just trying to say like I felt super proud of it. And if it was panned, you know, I'd be like, okay. <laughs> like, I just, I, I feel, you know, real proud of my friends and I, I, th- I, I think we, we worked pretty hard on this and, um, and, uh, you know, like, you know, that, that's, that's kind of all that really matters. And there's been like, and there's been like, you know, you know, Spin Magazine said some nice things, but you know what? This random kid, you know, that I met along the way or, you know, said something really kind or, you know, I got to know this 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 woman who three weeks before she gave birth to her first child, her husband and the father died tragically in an accident. And we got to communicate and just and just share some life, you know, like stories of life. So like that, that's, that, that's the best, that's definitely the, like the, you know, the best part. And I, I'm, I'm real. And I'm also, you know, it's nice for people to say nice things. And, but it's really, I guess to answer your question, I'm super proud, but, but largely because like of the interesting off the beaten path, like commentaries or conversations I had, I've had as a result. Right. Cause you put your heart and soul into this thing and the record comes out great, so the fact that there's been such a positive reaction to it, I think, is a bonus. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Two of my daughters were really sick this week, and I was home with them, and uh, I grew up in a very strict Irish Catholic household, and sorry, uh, not <laughs> <laughs> not tons of hugging and or you know affection shown, and uh, I found myself, like you said, with your father, like trying to create those moments and uh you know my daughter was sick and she was laying on the couch the baby was asleep you know she had a fever so she, I, I put her down for a nap and i walked up to her and i gave her a big hug and i said please know that i'm extraordinarily proud of you and she was like for what and i'm like for everything and do you find moments with your children now that you go I need to make this a moment. I need to make this something special. Hopefully it, it's, a, it's something that they remember. Do you find yourself putting yourself in that position where you are forcing it or, 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 or trying to be like, I need to let you know that you understand that I love you more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, it's a good question. I definitely do. And it's, it's a total result of, not getting the time I wanted with my father, you know, like we, it was kind of like a jilted teen growing up as, you know, moving around as an army brat, my father being extremely busy. And then, you know, just like the pretty typical things of like, you know, of 
tragedies in a family along the way in, in adolescence with other siblings. And, you know, those things got in the way of, you know, like my father and I really making that like super strong connection early on. And then you tack on the Irish Catholic <laughs> like <laughs> approach that it was just like in, in inherited along the way of like guilt reservation, closed <laughs> closeness, like closing off things. You know, I think my father uh, was drawn to poetry because of it. It kind of operated as like a, like a, like a, a proxy for emotion. Yeah. And it yeah. was like a doorway. And he was like, you know, I remember, you know, I still have these letters that like his former students wrote after he, he died suddenly during the school year. And like, I just remember being like, wow, like I did not like, you know, my, and it's, my father would have these very powerful moments quasi like brooding about like the beauty of life. And I, I could see glimpses of that, but I just remember being like, Oh my God, if I could be a student in my father's class for a year, what I would give for that, it would just be amazing. Cause like, you know, I, I, I was one of his students when I was a freshman in high school, but he and I were going through it. I <laughs> like, we were not friendly and it was, you know, I, 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 it's one of the biggest regrets of my life that he and I were not friends in that during that time. But we became, we got real, um, we just started really like becoming super chummy, you know, uh, and, and, then, and then he passed. And so I, I, that, that, that's with me. And like, you know, like my son is two, two and a half years old and just like, you know, like, you know, I try and I try to like not force it. If, but I can't, can't help myself sometimes. I can't like, you know, like I, um, I definitely like, like, I like, be like, I just be like, oh, you know, Richie, I, I, I love you so much. And I could so almost be like, you know, he's like, he's like, yeah, okay. Uh, we're playing with toys right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that is absolutely true. Listen to this song on this record that I wrote for you. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, like, so like that, that impulse is totally there. And, uh, I, I accept it and I try not, like, you know, I try to, you know, like, I think it's a good impulse to have, you know, I don't think there's anything bad with it, but I, I, I also try to be like, you know, he's too, <laughs> like he's, he's got those things, but I, I, I'm sure in hindsight, he'll, have felt those things. And I, I, I just remember, I, I have some standout moments in, in early, early childhood with my father that I could talk about. So the, I think those things, like, I just remember this one time in era when we were living in Arizona, I w- must've been like three or something. I have a memory of it. I was just playing my toys. My dad came down to play with me. And, and I remember vividly saying, like giving him this, like, yeah, I play with my toys the way that I play with my toys and you're not really playing with my toys the right way. Um and I remember him not connecting with me, but to me that's not really what matters there. What matters there is that like I have this awesome memory of my father like laying down on the floor with me when I was 3 trying to play toys with me. So like I I come back to that and I'm like you know, like if, if Richie's like in his own like universe, imaginative universe playing with like the 
Disney cars toys that he, that he loves so much. And I like try to play with them and he gives me this, like, the fuck are you doing type of look? <laughs> like, I'm like, all right, man, whatever. I, I'm, I'm, I'm rolling with it. Uh, and you know, you might remember this time. So. Well, let's recap. So here's what we want to do, folks. We want to listen to Have Heart. Yes, we've got a lot of material out there. We want to check that out. Oh, yeah. Keep the streams going. I could use a another fraction of a penny my way. <laughs> <laughs> we want to check out Fiddlehead. We've oh, got yeah. Springtime and Blind. We've got Between the Richness, which just came out this year on Run for Cover. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we definitely want to check that out. And we want to catch Fiddlehead live. Do we have any gigs coming up? Oh, yeah. We're playing uh, playing in Florida in a couple weeks, uh, Atlanta, and then um, Jacksonville, the UK. We got a bunch of dates coming up. Check out, check the Instagram. There you have it, folks. Pat Flynn. Amazing conversation. Very forthcoming. The guy has done so much music. I mean, have heart. Excellent. Fiddlehead. Excellent. Two home runs. And there was a lot of stuff there, Tommy. We went deep. And those are my favorite types of conversations. You know, he was really forthcoming about what's going on with his family and and uh, the grief that he experienced. And uh, we just really got into it. I loved it. I really like the fact that he went, yeah, I just want to be a teacher. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that, that resonated so much with me because there were so many times where I thought, well, what if I try to start a band with X? And it was like, no, just this is what I'm going to do. Like I, I've known I was going to do something in terms of education for a long time. And him saying that out loud was like, the kind of edification that like, I needed that kind of like reassurance, like, Hey, other people do this. Like, this is not weird for you to be involved in hardcore. And then be like, no, I, I I'm doing something completely different, but at the same time, you know, taking that mindset and moving it somewhere else. It's just funny at 24. He's like, okay, I'm not going to be in this world renowned hardcore band anymore. I'm going to begin <laughs> teaching. And, I thought I was going to be in music until I was like 35. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. It just took me longer to get there. Yeah. It's, I, you kept kind of hitting on it, but like he had a, a real maturity about him that a lot of people don't reach until much later in life, or at least until after a certain amount of failure, <laughs> they go, you know what? Never mind. I'm not going to yeah. try this anymore. I really think it's what your family instills in you. You know, because yeah. he said he thought about what his dad said about just the path to take in life and all that stuff. And I didn't really have that. And I'm not saying it's my family's fault or anything. I'm just saying, like, I had an idea sort of what I wanted to do, but I didn't have any idea of how to get there or I don't know. I just felt lost. But listen, it was great to talk to Pat. He's done so much great music and he's continuing to do that. So thank you so much, Pat. And. Tommy, let's talk about this record giveaway, huh? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yes, you can get your hands on a limited edition colored vinyl one step closer. This Place You Know LP, fresh from Run For Cover Records. Here's what you're going to do. Take a picture of the episode, post it, tag us in Iodine Recordings, and we'll pick a winner. Simple as that. Boom. 
I'm excited about it. And on top of that, it's an awesome record. This is one of the best records of the year. One step closer, baby. And on top of that, Wilkes-Barre for life. So what's up? <laughs> That's right. I forgot about your Wilkes-Barre connections. So yeah, take a snapshot of this episode in your player, post it and tag us in Iodine Recordings. Boom. And you could win a free record. So there you go. Okay. What else is going on? Uh, how are we, Tommy? We haven't even gotten to talk about ourselves yet. Yeah. Uh, I have a bunch of stuff written down about me, but let me start with, how are you? I'm a wreck. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. I can, it, it, it's Tuesday and we haven't finished recording yet. And you're like, I, in my head, I'm going like, he is panicking. Ugh. Yeah, it, it's fine though. Like, look, here's, here's the good things going on. One, our Twitch channel is going strong. Tommy was on there today. Tommy yes. registered and was in the chat and was watching me play Contra. And I was so happy. We have like six or seven followers now on Twitch. The way I put it, seeing Tommy in the chat on the Twitch channel would be like if Tommy randomly went to Costco and I was there. Twitch is so important to me. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. I'm on there a lot during the day. You know, just starting this channel was such a big deal to me. And the fact that I'm doing it now, and I have a, a Contra video up there where I did a deathless run. It took like two and a half hours. And I just keep going back to the channel and I keep clicking on it and seeing the video there. And I'm so happy. I, I cannot tell you how happy I am that I got this thing up and running. I was excited I got on, honestly. Yeah. As soon as it sent a code to my phone, I was like, ugh, really? All right, all right, I'll copy this into the thing. Which one has a panda? Oh, god damn it. Like, <laughs> like as soon as I was like going through like the sequence of like registering and putting all the information, I was like, you know what? It's for Keith. I'll do this. Like, ugh. however, I was pleasantly surprised when i got in i was like oh it's really just him playing contra and talking to me this is amazing like it was really really fun and on top of that keith is really good at video games like really really good <laughs> well thank you i i'm i'll take it i'll take it but yeah the twitch channel is up follow us twitch.tv slash the new scene i'm gonna be doing more nes playthroughs i've got some other stuff planned and of course tommy and i will be doing some Twitch exclusive interviews, so you'll get to see our faces as we talk to emerging artists and friends and other people. So that's going to be great. And yeah, I, you know, I'm just stressed because I have this week off from work and I know what I'm doing every day for the rest of the week. So it feels almost like it's already time to go back to work. Yeah. Thanksgiving is in a couple of days. So I'm going to go see my family. I haven't seen them, I think, since last Thanksgiving. Wow. Yeah. So. That's going to be good. Yeah, I'm I'm stressed, but I'm also really happy because there's so much going on with the show. I don't know, Tommy. Every day feels fulfilling and busy and brimming with stuff. So I'll take a little anxiety and stress on top of that if it just means that it feels like awesome things are happening all the time, which they are. That's what's going on with me. What's up with you? Uh, I fixed my snowblower, so <laughs> that's good to go. Um, all the Christmas lights are up. Do you want to tell the people what happened because of the Christmas lights? <laughs> so all I th all of our power went out. I hope it's not the Christmas lights. I When I went outside, everybody, like I ran up the steps real quick. My neighbor's lights were out too. So I'm hoping it was just an accident somewhere near my house, which is not uncommon 
because we are connected to the same grid as street roads. So if there was somebody that unfortunately may or may not have hit a power line or a telephone pole, uh, we lost power for a moment and it came right back. But, uh, Do you want to tell the people when you lost power? Uh, in the middle of the interview, like right in the <laughs> middle of the interview, like 34 minutes deep. <laughs> it was just like, Keith texted me, did you just get kicked out? I'm like, I did. I'm restarting everything. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, yeah. I actually wasn't mad. You know, usually I get frustrated at stuff like this, but I, I don't know. It happens. It ha- It's happened to me in the middle of interviews before. Like my computer would just overheat and shut down. Yeah. You had the problem with your uh, mic cable before too. Like it was just like, it, these things just, happen. Yeah. And it's, you know, it was like instantaneous. I, I was back on within a minute and a half, two minutes. Like it was just, it was on my end though, pure panic. I felt <laughs> that real moment of like, Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> when just, it's happening to you, you just feel panicked. Yeah. But ev- that's pretty much it. Like everybody's sick here, which kind of sucks. I actually, uh, can kind of empathize with you. You're like, Oh, I had the whole week off and you know, I feel like I'm already back at work. I thought I was going to have Monday and Tuesday by myself to kind of, you know, get the Christmas lights up and do some Christmas shopping and, you know, get things ready for Thanksgiving and do the nothing. The baby has been sick and throwing up. Uh, Ellie's had a fever and uh, ear infection. So I've had two of the kids home with me all day. Both days I was supposed to be off by myself uh, have been me staying at home with the girls when they're supposed to be at school. But tomorrow, everybody's home. So I will be at the skate park at 630 when sun comes up. And uh, that's about it on my end. Nothing, nothing really pressing. Work's going great. Family's going great besides everybody being sick. But that's it. That's all I got. Well, it sounds like we're doing pretty good, Tommy. So I'll take it. Yeah. It's the only option we have. <laughs> like it, it's, there's no like, oh, let's go back and change this. Just yeah. These are the cards we dealt. So No, I'm feeling it, man. I'm, I feel like I'm in a whirlwind, but a good whirlwind. We had this discussion not that long ago through text, but like we both enjoy the chaos of what we do. <laughs> like, yeah. And there's times where it's like you feel like you don't have a good handle on anything, but at the same time you're like, I'm glad I have so many things that I have to handle. Exactly. Because the opposite has been true and those weren't the most fun days. But uh, listen, folks, we're out of time. So as a reminder, post a picture of the episode and tag us in Iodine Recordings. You can get your hands on a one step closer, this place you know, colored vinyl. Do it. Do it. And tune back in next week because we're here every week. For yeah. you. Yes. For Every you. Every week. Every week. So that's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time.